reading is taken from the book of Genesis. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way. Now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent, of, into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three sayas of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where's your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my husband is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, Yes, you did laugh. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. We're in the fourth week now of this summer sermon series that we're calling The Greatest Characters of All Time. And as we've been saying every week, the idea is to to look at the story of an individual, a biography of one of these ancient characters from the Bible who are the the most well-known characters we have of any kind, and uh, in looking at their story, try to see if there's not something that we can learn both about God's story and also about our own story. So uh, that's what we're, we're doing again today with this woman named Sarah. This is the first Sarah, the Sarah after whom all other Sarahs are named. It's a very popular name, obviously, if you look at from the last hundred years in the U.S., from 1915 to 2015. The name Sarah is in the, the top ten for girls for that Period, and they're all named after this woman. So it's quite a, a legacy. What we're going to see is that her story, at least this episode of her life, which is the, the most important episode in her life, is really a story about laughter. She laughs twice in the story. She names her son Isaac, which means laughter more than any other biblical story I can think of. This story centers on this theme of laughter. And the two times that she laughs in the story are laughter of two very different types. So that's actually what I want us to structure the sermon around, those two different types of laughter. Those will be the two sections of the sermon. First, we're going to look at the laugh of despair, and then second, we're going to look at the laugh of wonder. The laugh of despair and the laugh of wonder, those will be the two parts to this morning's sermon. So first, the, the laugh of despair. The first time Sarah laughs in the story, 
is when she's eavesdropping on this conversation that her husband is having with some visitors and one of the visitors says something that makes her laugh. And what we want to figure out is, is why. Why she laughs and what that laugh is about. So, so to figure that out, we have to do quite a bit of background work, actually. First thing to know is that Sarah is married to Abraham, and Abraham is uh, something of a, a religious fanatic. At least that's how it would appear to Sarah, because Abraham hears voices. Abraham hears, hears one voice in particular, this deity who, who talks to him and, and tells him things. And to make matters worse, it's a deity that neither Sarah nor Abraham have ever heard of before. So they've heard of these other deities, these other gods, but they've never heard of this god. This god is, is calling himself Shaddai. He calls himself uh, Yahweh later to, to Moses, but first Abraham he reveals himself as Shaddai. Abraham has never heard of Shaddai before. All he knows is that he's hearing from Shaddai. Shaddai is speaking to him and telling him to do things, and he's telling Sarah, look, i, I got to do what this voice is telling me. So it's, it's uh, sort of like, if you remember the, the movie from 1989, Field of Dreams. It's, it's kind of like that, where the, the husband, you know, hears this voice that says, what, what does the voice say? If you build it, they will come. That's right. And uh, he figures out what that means, is that he's supposed to plow over, he's a Kevin Costner, he's an, a farmer in Iowa, a corn farmer. He's supposed to plow over his cornfields and uh, put in a baseball diamond instead. And he, he says to his wife, i got to do this. And she says, this is crazy. You know, this is, this is suicide. We can't do this. But he, he doesn't relent. He won't let go. And so finally she gives in, and they build a field, and these, these baseball ghosts show up. And then, and then James Earl Jones comes for some reason, gives an amazing... <laughs> Amazing speech about the importance of baseball uh, in America, but that's not really important. What's important is that this is Sarah's situation, the wife in Field of Dreams. Her husband is hearing this voice and wants to do this crazy thing, and she has to go along with it. And in Abraham's case, the crazy thing is even crazier than, than putting a baseball diamond over cornfields, because what this Shaddai character is telling Abraham to do is he says, I want you to leave your hometown, leave all of your your family, leave your everything that you've established here, and set out and live as nomads, trek across the desert. Just keep going until I tell you to stop. And he says, if you do this, then I will make of you a great nation. You'll be the father of all of these descendants. Your descendants will number more than the stars in the sky, more than the, the grains of sand on the shore. You will be the father of this great people. And that's attractive to Abraham because up to that point, he and his wife had not been able to have kids at all. They were childless. So Abraham has faith. Abraham believes. And Sarah is along for the ride. And the the point that we pick up the story is at a very low point. It's now been decades since they left. They're out in the middle of the desert somewhere, as they have been for all these years, and nothing has happened. There is no child. So Abraham is, is really looking like an idiot. I mean, this would be like, you know, if Kevin Costner builds the field and then nobody comes, nothing happens. And he just keeps saying to his wife year after year after year, no, I know they're going to come. I know they're going to come. And at some point she would, she would either divorce him or have him committed to an institution or, or probably both because she's, she's thinking, look, you, you haven't just made a fool out of yourself. You've made a fool out of all of us. You made a fool out of me too. That's how Sarah is feeling. And the, any thought, any thought at all 
that somehow the fulfillment of the promise was still in the future, that maybe it was still going to happen, has been completely extinguished by the simple biological fact of menopause. It says in the text, they were already middle-aged when the promise came, so it was already going to be a quasi-miracle then. But now they're 90 and 100. And that's not necessarily as old then as it is today. You know, people lived a little bit longer in this early era of the Bible, but it's still too old to have a child. The, the text says she's beyond the age of childbearing. So she knows it's over. She knows it didn't. It just quite simply didn't happen. And now she's stuck out in the desert with this man who is probably crazy. And her, her life has been stolen from her. Her life has been completely taken by this wild goose chase, this delusion, and she's not very happy about it, to say the least. So that's where we find her. And the, the episode that this passage focuses on is this episode where they're out there in the desert and these three travelers, these other nomads, come upon their camp. So this is kind of a big event. They, they rush around and get all the food and drink ready for them, which is quite an effort. You know, it's not like pop open a, a can of Pringles. This is kill the goat and make the cheese and knead the, the flour for the bread. And they do all that. Hospitality is this very sacred uh, value in that, in that time and place. And they get the guys all set up and make them comfortable and they're sitting in the shade. And then it's time for them to talk. They're going to talk with Abraham. It's kind of a, a guy's thing. And so Sarah, she, she's not really part of the group, but she wants to hear what's going on still. And so they're set up outside of Abraham's tent. And she goes inside of Abraham's tent so that she's out of sight, but she can still hear what's going on, which is exactly how God wants it. But they don't know. They, they just look like three guys to Sarah and Abraham. We know that one of these people is Shaddai, is God himself taking human form. The other two are angels. And with Sarah right there inside the tent, that's exactly how God wants it because what becomes clear as the story progresses is that God hasn't come to talk with Abraham. He's come to talk with Sarah. But he's, he's abiding by the social conventions of the time. You know, it would have been odd for these guys to show up and say, hey, let's have a conference with the wife. So instead, he's ostensibly having this conversation with Abraham. But really, he's talking to Sarah. And the, the first way we see that is when he says, before he starts talking, he says, where is your wife? Sarah, that's the first thing he asks. And Abraham says, well, actually, she's right on the other side of that flap right there. And so then God says, okay, great, I can say what, what I came to say. And he says, by this time next year, your wife, Sarah, will have a child. This is the year that the promise is finally going to come true. And Sarah is on the other side of the tent, and she's listening to this, and she's not realizing a number of things. Number one, she's not realizing that God, this is God, so she doesn't know it's God at all. Number two, she's not realizing that God has come to talk with her and not Abraham. And number three, she doesn't realize that God is listening to her. So not realizing all of those things, she hears what God says, and she laughs. And we're, we're calling this first section of the sermon the laugh of despair, and we, we know it's a laugh of despair by what she mutters when she laughs. What she says is, you might have remembered the line, she says, now that I am worn out and my husband is old, now I will have this pleasure. And there's a lot going on there, so I want to take a few minutes to, to dig into that line. So in the first place, it's clear that she doesn't believe this traveler at all. You know, It's not like there's any sense in which this is reignited her faith. She knows it's not going to happen, and in that sense, it is the laugh of, of scoffing, the laugh of disbelief, 
of course I'm, I'm not going to have a child. But there's, there's more to it than that. There's this other angle and this other dimension to it that I'd like to spend some time unpacking, which is that it's not just a laugh of, of disbelief and scoffing. It's also a laugh of, of deep bitterness and of self-hatred. And the way we see that is by this, this term she uses. It's translated worn out. Now that I'm worn out, which in, in the Hebrew is actually an extremely pejorative term. It means useless, good for nothing, completely used up. Now that I'm worthless. And when she says that, I, I want to make an inference, which is that she's not just referring to the fact that she can no longer have children. I think that it's also safe to say that she's also using this term worn out, useless, as a reflection of the way that she feels about herself now as an older woman in general. So aging is, is hard for, for everybody, so I'm told. Uh, you know, it's, you talk to people, you read things, and pretty much everybody hates getting old. There's, it, it hits different people in different ways, but nobody really likes it. There are some people, it seems like, though, for, for whom aging is more difficult than others. So for, for men, stereotypically, this would be men who have physical prowess in their youth, you know, athleticism, who are able to do things with their body that other men weren't able to do, and that kind of set them apart. And then as they age, they lose that, and there's a loss of identity with that. And for, for women, stereotypically at least, it would be physical beauty. Women that are exceptionally beautiful in their youth, and that sets them apart from other women, and they, as they age, they, they lose that. And Sarah was part of that second group. This is one of the thematic links between this week's passage and last week's passage. This is the only two times in the last six years I can think of that we've talked about beauty on two back-to-back weeks, and it's one of these, these themes in the book of Genesis. With the wives of the patriarch last week, remember we talked about Leah, the hero of the story who was unattractive, and her sister Rachel, who was exceptionally beautiful. Jacob's wife, Rachel, is said to be very beautiful. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, is said to be very beautiful. And Abraham's wife, Sarah, is, we're led to conclude, the, the most beautiful of all. And if you think that, you know, the Bible's sexist and it talks about the, the beauty of the women because it's written by men, I do want to mention that it talks about the various male characters being good-looking at, at different points, too. Uh, it, so it's, it's even. Uh, it, it, it doesn't mention any of these guys being particularly good-looking, you know, Isaac and, and Jacob and Abraham. So they all seem to marry out of their league. And uh, Abraham, not only did Abraham marry out of his league, but Abraham was a, a terrible coward, and that cowardice interacted with his wife's beauty in a really unfortunate way. So what would happen is, as they were passing through the desert, and they would come to a populated area, they'd come to a town, uh, what, what Abraham would say to Sarah, now remember, Sarah doesn't want to be on this trip to begin with, and Abraham would say, look, uh, when they see you, they're just going to kill me to get to you, so they can have you. So what, what I want you to do is we're going to tell them that you're my sister. And then I'm going to offer you as, as a gift to like the, the, you know, the king or the chieftain or whoever so that he can sleep with you. And then you'll become an asset to us instead of a liability. And, you know, we can, they'll give us gifts and presents and they'll treat us well and they'll, we'll be on our way. So, you know, the, the least chivalrous thing that's ever been done in the history of the world wins any contest for worst husband of the year award. But the point is not so much what a, what a schmuck Abraham was, though he was. The point is, that's how beautiful Sarah was. Stunningly beautiful. Outrageously beautiful. You know, movie star, cover girl, good looks. Completely set her apart. 
And uh, I, I would, now that we've done this for two weeks, I would like to do a whole sermon on beauty at some point because the Bible has a lot to say about it and it's a pretty fascinating theme, especially since our culture is so beauty obsessed. But for this morning, we don't have time to get into it fully. The, the point is just to say that there's no way that for Sarah that her distinctives in this area, that her good looks weren't a big part of her identity. And that's not to say that she didn't have mixed feelings about it at times, you know, when she's being forced to sleep with these strange men. I'm sure she wished she was more plain looking. But still, it, it's what makes her who she is. It's, it's what sets her apart. It's what defines everything about the way that she relates, not only to men, but also to other women. This beauty, this hyper-femininity, this sexuality. And now she's old. Now all of that is gone. Now she is a, a shell of her former self. And she looks at herself now and she says, I'm worn out. I'm good for nothing. I'm worthless at this point. And this broader uh, interpretation of the term worn out as referring to, to all of this is given even more credence by what she says next. Now that I'm worn out and my husband is old, will I have this pleasure? When you first read that, will I have this pleasure, you think it's saying, now that I'm old and worn out, will I have this pleasure of having this child? If you think having a child is a pleasure, you're a man. Uh, it's, it's, she doesn't say this honor or this privilege or this blessing, which is what she would say if she's talking about having a child. She says this pleasure. She wouldn't talk about having the child as the pleasure. And the, the way we can know that, and we don't even have to deduce what she is talking about, because the, the word for pleasure that she uses there is specifically a word for, for sexual pleasure. So what, what she's saying is she's, she's commenting, she's laughing, not just at the thought of having the child, she's laughing at the thought of the sex itself. She's saying, now that I am old, now that I have lost everything that made me who I am, now that I've ceased to, virtually ceased to be a sexual person altogether, now that my husband is old, now that we haven't had sex in years, now we're going to make love and have a child. That's a joke. The thought of us in bed together is a joke. And she laughs at that, this scornful, self-hating laugh. That's the first half of the sermon. That's Sarah's first laugh, the laugh of despair. So now I want to move into the, the second half of the sermon and look at her, move toward her second laugh, which is the laugh of wonder. This is the, the turning point, and what we're going to see from here to the end is we're going to watch how God himself gently takes her from where she is to where he wants her to be. And it starts with the way he responds to her, her laugh and her question. He responds very gently. He, what he says, he asks her two questions. We'll look at them one at a time. The first question he asks her is, why did Sarah, he's asking through Abraham still, why did Sarah laugh and say, uh, now that I'm old, will I, will I have this child? A couple of things to note about this question. One, like I said, is just the gentleness of it. You know, Sarah has just laughed at God himself, has just laughed at the creator of the universe, and God does not roar and say, how dare you laugh at me, you, you human speck. He doesn't turn into a blaze of, of fire and, and burn her up. Instead, he just gently asks, why, why did she laugh? And the gentleness of the question is seen in, in the way he paraphrases what she says. Because she refers to uh, the loss of her beauty, she refers to being worn out, this, this pejorative term. She refers to the absurdity of, of having sex with her husband. He edits all of that out. And instead, he just says, why did she say, how could I have a child now that I'm old? 
And what all the commentators have noted is, look at how he's unwilling to repeat these nasty things that she says about herself. He won't even let those words come out of his own lips because he doesn't feel that way about her. Extremely gentle. Even when she says, you know, she, she hears what he says and she says, whoops, he heard me, and she pokes her head out and says, I didn't laugh. So now she's not only laughed at God, she's lied to God, lied to his face, and still God doesn't erupt with anger. He just says, oh, but he did. You know, he just gently says, yes, yes, he did laugh. So that's the first question that God asks in response, this gentle question where he edits out her self-loathing and refuses to respond with anger. Why did Sarah laugh and say, how can I have a child now that I'm old? But the, the second question he asks is actually the, the question that I want us to spend the rest of our time on. This will take us to, to the end. The second question he asks is, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At least that's how it's translated in the, in the version we used this morning. It's a perfectly legitimate translation. That's the, the sense of what he says. But there's another way you can translate the same line, which is actually even more literal. Which You can also translate it, is anything too wonderful for the Lord. The, the word that's used there for hard or wonderful is it's this literally the word wonder. It's the word you see all the time in the in the Psalms, you know, tell of the wonders of God, talk about his mighty deeds. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? And when you put it like that, what you see is that when God is asking this question, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? In one sentence, in a single sentence, he is completely diagnosing Sarah's spiritual condition and pointing at, getting at the reason why she's laughing, the laugh of despair, and the reason why she's filled with cynicism. Because what's, what's the opposite of a sense of cynicism? It's a sense of wonder. A sense of wonder. Is anything too wonderful for me? And a sense of wonder, you know, if it's, it's hard to describe or define. It's very easy to identify, though. You know it when you see it. So small children, for instance, are, are filled with this intense sense of, of wonder. My two oldest daughters, Reese and Anna, six and four, they live lives saturated by wonder. Everything is wonderful. Everything is amazing. The smallest little thing, you know, a stupid coin trick or uh, a story that's not even very well told or a stick or a bug or dirt or snow or the park or the pool or the ocean or even the subway at the zoo it's all just so wonderful it just it all blows their mind and they can't believe it they can't take it in and they just want to do everything again and again and again they never get tired of any of it but that doesn't last forever you know it, eventually you grow out of that and as you get older it's harder to maintain that sense of wonder so you take a, a four-year-old to the zoo and they say wow Take a 14-year-old to the zoo, and they say, why are we here? You know, they, what's happened? They've, they've lost the sense of wonder. And that's what has happened to Sarah. She's lost the sense of wonder. She's all grown up now. She's seen a lot. She's been disappointed a lot. She's been let down a lot. She's been through a lot. And with that, the wonder has completely dissipated from her life, and now all she has left is the cynicism. But what's interesting is that God, God himself, who has seen more than anybody, who has been around longer than anybody, God himself still maintains this sense of childlike wonder. I want to read you something from uh, G.K. Chesterton. 
We were talking a second ago about how kids, they just want to do things again and again and again. They never get tired of it. I want to read you something Chesterton says, the, the, the great British essayist, about how this quality in children relates to God. He says, Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough. Perhaps God says, every morning to the sun, do it again. And every evening to the moon, do it again. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. Sarah has sinned and grown old, and her father, this traveler who's promising her the child, is younger than she is. He still has this sense of wonder. I love this idea of Chesterton's that God every morning is wondering at the sun rising and the moon rising every night. It's never, it's never old or boring to him like it is to us. Oh, yeah, yeah, we've seen that a thousand times. The, the best children's story written in the last six or seven years, uh, the best-selling children's story of all time, is Charlotte's Web by E.B. White, the, the great uh, literary stylist and writer at the New Yorker. You remember the, the premise of the story. It's about this, this pig, Wilbur, who's new to the world and so has this intense sense of wonder at everything. And he's put in this barn full of of animals who love to laugh the laugh of despair. They love to laugh, but it's always this cynical, sarcastic type of laughter. And what the story is about is is him trying to, to bring them along. So there's this one scene where he sees this sunset, and he's just ecstatic. He's doing flips. He cannot believe it. He's just out of his mind. Hey, come on, you guys have to see this. You have to see this. And he, he makes them all come out to look at the sunset. And for this one moment, he's actually able to pierce through their cynicism and their despair. And they, they, his wonder is contagious, and they see it as if for the first time. You know, the horse says, goodness, does that happen every night? You know, the horse can't believe it. And that's what the whole story is about. You know, you probably remember that, that Charlotte uh, weaves these webs that have words in them. So radiant, terrific, that sort of thing. And uh, it's, it's about finding, the story's about finding the wonderful and the ordinary. But this is extraordinary. And so the, the uh, mom on the farm, she's talking to her doctor about this, who's this very wise man. And she says, you know, it's just, it's just hard for me to believe that a spider would be weaving these words. I mean, spiders don't really do that. So it'd be a miracle for a spider to, to be weaving these words. And I don't know if I believe in miracles. And what the doctor says to her in response is, you know, the miracle is that a spider can weave a web at all. I mean, think about it. Think about how intricate it is and how beautiful it is and how strong it is and how light it is. Think about how wonderful it is. And that's a a seemingly simple statement that may sound kind of sentimental to you, but he's getting at something very deep, which is, is anything too wonderful for God? God made spiders. God made spiders that can weave webs. So it's really not much of a stretch, even though this doesn't usually happen. It's much less miraculous in a sense to think of a spider weaving a word in a web. If you look at all, if you open your eyes and look at the sort of universe we live in, is anything too wonderful for God? 
And that is what God is saying to Sarah. He's saying, Sarah, I make the sun come up every morning. I made the moon and the stars. I make the planets revolve in their orbits. I made you. I made the whole, I thought of the whole idea of women having children. So yes, I realize that women of your age don't normally have children. Thank you for the biology lesson. But my question to you is, is there anything too wonderful for me? By this time next year, you will have a child. And of course, it happens exactly the way that God says. By that time next year, she does have a child. And in response to the child, the text says she laughs. But it's a completely different type of laughter now. Her laughter has been totally transformed. The cynicism is gone. The despair is gone now. It's this laugh of wonder. And it's interesting. In some sense, it's still a laugh of disbelief. She can't believe it. She can't believe that it's actually happened. She can't believe that God is this good, that God is this gracious. You know, she even said, you remember this from the passage, she says, who would have thought, who would have ever said that this would happen to me and to Abraham? Who could, thought, who could have thought that this would be real? And yet, so it is. Here's this child in my arms. And she names the child laughter. Isaac means laughter. In doing that, I think that what it, what it says is not only that nothing's too wonderful for God, but it also says that no person is beyond God's reach or beyond God's grace. Because in naming the child laughter, I don't think she's thinking of just the second time she, she laughs. There's no way she's naming that child laughter without also thinking of the first time she laughed, the most infamous laugh she ever laughed, this point where, like we talked about already, she mocked God to his face and then lied to him directly. Now, that is the low point in any person's spiritual biography. I don't care who you are. And with most gods, that would have been the end of the story. With every other pagan god she had heard of, that would have been it right there. She would have been finished. There would have been nothing else beyond that because she disbelieved. But not with this god. Because with this god, he's gracious to her and he fulfills the promise to her even though she doesn't believe, even though she mocked him and laughed at him. And lied to him. And so part of her laugh of wonder is wondering at his graciousness and wondering at herself, wondering at this change that's come over herself. And the way she sees herself is totally transformed. Now, now she doesn't see herself as worn out. She doesn't see herself as this formerly beautiful woman who's now grown old, this story of decline. Now she sees herself as this formerly cynical woman who has now developed a sense of wonder, this story of transcendence. And you say, all right, I wish, you know, I wish God would do that for me. I wish God would be that gracious to me. I wish God would fulfill a promise like that to me. I wish God would come in the flesh like that to me. And you probably see where I'm going with this. The answer to that is he already has. Uh, in, in Luke 1, a visitor, a stranger, comes to a woman's house. We know the stranger is an angel. And the visitor says to the woman who is a descendant of Sarah. Her name is Mary. We talked earlier about how Sarah is one of the top ten names for girls. Number one, obviously, by a long shot, is the name Mary. This woman, Mary, a descendant of Sarah, and this visitor says to this woman, Mary, Mary, by this time next year, you're going to have a child. And Mary says, how can this be? Because I, I don't have a husband. I've, in fact, I've never even been with a man. In other words, she basically laughs. And the angel says in response, is anything too wonderful for God? And Mary, as a devout Jew, would have immediately thought of Sarah. 
I would have thought, well, if Sarah can have uh, a baby with an old husband, I guess I can have a baby with no husband at all. So this child is named Jesus, which means God saves. And what becomes clear as he grows up is that this child, just as God came to Sarah in human form as a special occasion, this child has God come to all of us in human form. So he, he grows up and he teaches like no one has ever taught before. He performs signs and wonders. There's that word again. And he creates this sense of excitement and this sense of wonder. He brings wonder back into the world for everybody who hears him and who touches him and who's around him. But then our cynicism and our self-hatred and our despair get the better of us. And we decide that it's all too much and we crucify him. That's on a Friday. He dies on Friday afternoon. He's buried on Friday night. And on Sunday morning, he rises from the dead. He comes back to life. Shortly thereafter, he ascends into heaven. And uh, before he goes, he says two things. He says, one, I'm going to come back someday and set up my kingdom in which there's going to be no mourning or death or crying or pain. And then two, in the meantime, I will live within the heart of anyone who places their trust in me from now till then. Now, admittedly, that all sounds pretty far-fetched. But my question for you is, is anything too wonderful for God? I understand that that dead people usually stay dead, but 90-year-old women don't usually have children. You say, well, let's, for the sake of argument, I mean, it's kind of silly, but for the sake of argument, let's say that it is true. Let's just grant you that and say that Jesus really is who he said he was and really did the things that you, you say he did. Let's say that it really was God come to us in human form. If so, why does that matter? How does that affect me? Why should I believe it? And the way I'll answer that is by putting a question back to you, which is, well, what, what difference did it make to Sarah? See, if you believe it, what that means is that you can no longer have to laugh the laugh of cynicism and despair and self-hatred. You no longer have to have your identity wrapped up in these distinctives, which, as Sarah found out, are very fragile and will ultimately be taken away from you. And instead, you can be filled for the first time with a sense of wonder, wonder at God's graciousness, that he would still be faithful to me even when I lacked faith, that he would still be gracious to me even when I lied to him, even when I turned my back on him, even when I laughed at him, that he, in all of that, would not stop loving me and would not stop coming to me and would not stop initiating this relationship with me. If you believe that, then the wonder comes back into your life. And you can laugh. You can laugh in a new way. You can laugh at God's graciousness and God's goodness. You can also laugh at yourself, this sense of wonder at yourself. Me, a Christian, you know, who would have thought? Who would have thought that I could believe this, but I do believe it? Who would have thought that I could live like this, but I actually am? Let's pray. God, we want to wonder at you this morning. We want to have our sense of wonder restored as we look at how wonderful you are and how there's nothing that's too wonderful for you. You know better than we do that we've laughed at you in the past and that we've disbelieved. You also know that that laughter and that disbelief has often come from a place of personal pain, from a place of of being disappointed and bitter about something that's happened or who we've become. So I ask that by the gentleness of your spirit this morning, you would come and heal those wounds. That You would come and let us know that you don't see our 
us the way that we see ourselves, that you have quite a different view of things. And that through Christ, through Christ's presence here among us, you would speak to us and let us know that the same sort of transformation that happened with Sarah can happen for us. We pray these things in his name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.